Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Hi, I'm Chris Dyerwald. And I'm Eliana Johnson. Welcome to Ink Stained Wretches where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, you probably had to do a lot of this for the debate that you so wonderfully helped to moderate. So I want to I get your sense of how, how unreasonable my feelings are. So I have a Sunday talk show. Yes, you do. Launching at the beginning of March. Now, part of having... Remind us the name and the date of the launch. It's The Hill Sunday with Chris Steyerwald. And Launching March 3rd, right? Yes, the first Sunday the Hill, The Hill Sunday with Chris Steyerwald. Set your DVRs. But what comes with it is promotional work. And yesterday, we're recording this on Thursday, and yesterday, I spent hours at a commercial shoot for the new show. Now... On the one hand, talk about privilege problems, right? Talk about privilege problems. Oh, they want to make a TV commercial for your TV show and you didn't like it? Poor baby. So I stipulate that part. But I cannot think of things, many things in my life that are more uncomfortable to do than be the subject of a commercial shoot doing publicity photos. I would rather train bees with my bare hands then do this work. It is horrible because it's, first of all, about you, right? It's like you, 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 number one. And number two, I don't look like a person who does that, right? I'm not, I'm not one of- Oh my gosh. It's, it's just cringy. Stop. It's just cringy. I would not mind at all sitting for hours recording a promotional commercial about myself I think that would be so much fun. I I, I think I, wondered, I, I would have a blast. Would I would be like, what am I wearing? Who's doing my hair? Yes, tell me more. And by the way, I think doing the commercial would be so much more fun than actually doing the show. Well, this, which is probably my problem and why I don't have a Sunday show. The hard part when you do the commercial is you want to try to be obliging and collegial to the people who are doing the commercial to give them the clips that they need in order to promote the TV show, which I hope is a great success and I hope we do a good job with. But not to say, have you ever watched 30 Rock? Are you a 30 Rock person? Only a handful of times. There's an episode in which Jenna and Liz, the main characters in the show, are doing a photo shoot for the funniest women in New York or whatever. And Liz decides that she she wants the limelight, that she's sick of Jenna getting all the attention. And Jenna tells her, don't. They want her to like, here's some goofy props. Here's some Groucho glasses. Here's a rubber chicken. What if, what if you did these things? And Jenna refuses. And she says, don't use the props. They tell you we'll just do one for fun. And then then that's the one they always use. And Liz leans into it, right? She She decides she'll abase herself and she does all the gags and she gets the cover. And when you're being asked questions about journalism and you're being asked questions about your work, how do you say it in a way that later when it's played back to you? A long time ago, I did a, I, I was part of an, an ill-conceived and poorly executed investigations team for a local TV network in West Virginia. And I got to see that ad over and over again, and I hated it with the white-hot passion of 10,000 Sons. I looked and sounded preposterous in the ad, like, who does this guy think he is? And so I was, in my mind, balancing those things as I was doing the commercial suit. Want to be collegial, want to be helpful, but also don't want me with a rubber chicken looped on television for the next six months. Well, if anyone wants to hire me to do a Sunday show, I will be totally down with recording all of the promotional commercials. But then go you're going to have to do the show from yeah, home no, by I, Zoom, I, I'm right? Because yes, you're not coming yes, in. Yes, I will. I will totally do the show by Zoom, and it will probably suck. Oh. Anyways, that's the Hill Sunday yes, with Chris Dyerwald, March third. That's Set right. Set your DVR. Do it. Do it. Okay, Chris. Before we get to the front page, 
I would be remiss if I did not implore people to watch us on YouTube. Oh, should they? Yes, quite yes. so. Here watch, we are. Watch Wretches on YouTube. And please leave us a review if you want to leave a five-star review. Or six. If you, if you don't, forget we ever said this. But anyhow, let's get to the front page. The Washington Post reports, GOP leaders face unrest amid chaotic, bungled votes. And they write, former President Donald Trump has used his perch as the GOP frontrunner to bend Congress to his political whims. And I'm glad that was the subheadline here because I have to say, so the, the Post writes, the dysfunction in the House Republican conference was rivaled only by that of its counterpart in the Senate. Republicans killed a border security bill that a small bipartisan group of senators spent months negotiating after House Republicans telegrams, telegraphed that their conference and by extension, the far right base led by former President Donald Trump would not support the bill. Um, I think Trump's influence on this has been overdone. You think? I do. Okay. The media has almost exclusively focused on this. Okay. And while the two things are connected, I think that the not enough attention has been paid to Republicans' genuine objections to it. I think there are people who wanted this bill. Senator Tom Cotton is one of them who is very supportive of Ukraine aid and Israel aid and but is quite hawkish on immigration, who put out a long tweet thread explaining his objections to this. And I think folks who found that the bill, they were not happy with where the bill came out. Do you think the Trump stuff has been overplayed? One aspect, though, that I think is quite interesting that has gotten a bit of news coverage, but not a ton. Politico had a good piece um, that we should add to our lineup on this was McConnell's loss of control of the Republican conference that I think. And look, they're linked, you know, Trump's Trump's ascension and McConnell's uh, loss of control. But for a time like those things coexisted. And I do think this Ukraine aid for McConnell is a legacy issue. Right. And I think his loss of control here of the Republican conference is is something of a turning point. So I, th- that that is certainly true. I, I think that the the tendency in coverage to Trump, 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 Trump is is excessive. There is no doubt. But I think it's also true that Trump here. So we think about the 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 goofball incompetence in the House. So. Yeah, you have the border bill, the this this grand bargain come to what appears to be naught. Now, by the way, I do think that there will be components of this that will surface, right? That the story is not done because we have a, a fiscal cliff coming up, a government shutdown looming. There's still substantial interest in Ukraine. There's still substantial interest in funding uh, the Israeli war effort. So... Pieces of this may indeed come back, but the border bill going down, but then the, these two back-to-back failures, which were striking to me. One was, so they the House Republicans were, rather than do border legislation, they were going to impeach uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security, in a the the epitome of political impeachments, right? It's just... It's not going anywhere in the Senate. They'll never he'll he, he it, it's it's a dead letter in the Senate, even more than the Lankford uh, bill was in the House. But they're doing it anyway so that they can say that they were doing something. And then they failed to pass the measure. And I thought, well, that that's pretty amazing. But then you're like, well, rookie speaker with an effort that's spearheaded by Marjorie Taylor Greene. OK, you're going to you're going to make you're going to you, you don't have the A team. But then. Here's the one that really amazed me. The next, in the next breath, they brought forward an Israel funding bill that was supposed I to- I agree with this. That was supposed to say, oh yeah, well, we've already passed a Israel funding bill and the Senate has this bad bill. We have a good bill to fund Israel. And that failed. What is going on in the world where you have back-to-back embarrassing failures? That's not about Trump, Right. That's about a speakership and a leadership team that is not competent. That's that's a that's a core competency question. Where I think Trump comes into the discussion usefully is 
when you have, when, when order and structure break down, and the basic message of Trump in his party is, do what's good for you, right? Like, I find it very funny, and we'll talk more about 2024 in a minute, but I find it very funny when people, when Trump people say to Nikki Haley, you should drop out for the good of the party. Well, when the hell did that turn into a, a thing again? When, 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 did, when did that start being a factor? And the other thing with Trump that makes it different, we have always known that in election years, legislative gambits are hard to pull off because people don't want to take risky votes. There is a sweet spot in between when most primaries take place and when the general election occurs that you can do some stuff where people will go against their party base in favor of things that might be appealing to the general electorate. But it's always an open proposition. What's different this time is they're saying it out loud, right? That people are explicitly saying, yeah, well, this isn't a good enough deal, so we're going to defeat it so that it, it hurts the Democrats in the upcoming election, and then we'll take total control. It's like, the it's like what we heard around Obamacare or the border before with when Democrats hosed Marco Rubio and other Republicans on an immigration deal, where you knew that election year politics or presidential politics were part of the calculation. But now, with as with a lot of things, it's a very idiocracy kind of Fuddruckers vibe around like, we're just saying out loud now, yeah, this is a political calculation. We want to hurt this other person so that we can have our advantage. I mean, far be it for politicians to be craven and cynical right. and political. I, do, I am just I do, not scandalized by it. I'm a fan of hypocrisy. I would rather people not vent their worst impulses and keep up the the, the fictive idea of good citizenship uh, and good leadership. Enough. I did want to, to your point, flag this a worthwhile post on Twitter from Bloomberg reporter Jonathan Tamari. Not long ago, if you had Mitch McConnell, the Wall Street Journal edit board, and Chamber of Commerce all endorsing a deal negotiated by a conservative Oklahoma senator, it would be a slam dunk with GOP senators. These folks aren't running the show anymore. Now, that certainly speeks to your point about McConnell and, and a, a, a accurate point about McConnell, which is, and we talked about this when he had his spells before and his health came into open question, staying too long, you know, and if if we have a lot of football to be played in the next six or eight weeks, as we talked about, but this would be a, a hard way for McConnell to, to lose to, at the end of an astonishingly successful career as a legislative tactician and political strategist, this would be this would be a hard way to end the story. But I will say this to Jonathan Tamari. I don't think that was true before. I don't think it was true before that if you had the Wall Street Journal editorial board, the Chamber of Commerce and Mitch McConnell, that things were slam dunks. I can think of also conservative centers from Oklahoma. How how successful was Dr. Tom Coburn? in advancing his agenda in the United States Senate. Not super, not super, right? And I think the the idea that these folks were running the show is not true. I think the Wall Street Journal editorial page is influential. It was influential. I, th I think the idea, though, that, the, that Paul Gigot and the editors at the Wall Street Journal were directing GOP policy in a substantial way. Maybe there was a time, I don't know. Well, it, it, was, it wasn't the case when George W. Bush tried to do an immigration deal, right? These same kinds of voices supported George W. Bush's immigration deal, and that went down in flames when talk radio and Fox News opinionators came out against the legislation. I totally agree with that. And for one, it's been it's been a long time since the Chamber of Commerce had any influence in Republican politics at all, probably five well, years. They don't have much influence on the right because Kevin McCarthy othered them. Right. And so it's been a long time since they had purchase. And the Journal editorial board, what you said is true, but also they are famously dovish on immigration. And so the idea right. that they would have that their stamp of approval, and I saw this all over on Fox News and elsewhere, in Politico, in, in the morning newsletters, even the conservative Wall Street Journal editorial board is saying they should pass this deal. 
The Journal Editorial Board is not where the base of the Republican Party is on immigration. So the idea that their stamp of approval would have been cited by the base of the Republican Party or Republican politicians as a validator for this bill just never made any sense to me. And I'm not trying to pick on Jonathan Tamari, who I I, I know is a, a good reporter for Bloomberg, but there is a recency bias problem that reporters have, which is, and this goes back to the Trump question, thing having context, I'm sure that I am blind to context about how things were in the 1990s, right? That before I got to Washington in 2007, I got to Washington after 9-11, I got to Washington after a bunch of things changed. I'm probably insufficiently aware of the similarities to the Washington that I have covered and worked in than it was to the 1970s or the 1960s. So I'm just just a point to say that the history history is long and that we did not, as James Carville, speaking of the 1990s, as James Carville would say, if you find a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. Up next, Chris, we have the... Haley Super PAC ad during Fox News's air aired during Hannity calling Trump chicken. Getting Hannitized. And the report indicating the main super PAC supporting former South Car- Carolina Governor Nikki Haley's presidential run uh, placed a new advertisement Wednesday during Fox News host Sean Hannity's time slot calling Donald Trump chicken for not debating his last remaining major 2024 GOP rival. Needling the ad, first reported by CBS News, features a video of a chicken alongside messages needling Trump over his debate avoidance as he runs for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Too old and unfit, the ad reads, or just unhinged and afraid? We don't know. The spot continues. But one thing we do know, Donald Trump is chicken. So the I I call it the Santorum effect in which Rick Santorum, just as an example, but it could be any number of people over the years, when he was chasing Mitt Romney, he went from a pariah in the mainstream media to like, look, look at this guy go. And he got booked for interviews on MSNBC and people uh, started to pay attention to him in ways because there's the, the narrative of Republicans in disarray is appealing to many in the press. Just as I will point out, Democrats in disarray is a very appealing, disarray is an appealing narrative. So Nikki Haley has been, it poses a conundrum for the media. What's the knock on Nikki Haley? The the shorthand for Nikki Haley is, well, she wouldn't really take on Trump. She's doing this, but she's not really taking on Trump. And she's not going hard enough at Trump. And so here she is, or here's her super PAC saying like, okay, here we are. We're, 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 we're swinging. We're, we're going after this. And Haley's candidacy in South Carolina, where she's down 20 or 30 points, her candidacy in South Carolina is dependent on she needs a lot of media coverage, right? For this to happen, for her to get, she, she says her marker in South Carolina is she's got to do as well in South Carolina as she did in New Hampshire. And she lost New Hampshire by 11 points. Is that right, Nate Moore? So she so she's so she's got to have the the gap, right? She's got to cut her deficit in South Carolina in half. She can't do that without a lot of media coverage, but she's not getting the media coverage that she might otherwise get because I think there's the Trump part of it where Trump is good TV and the the coverage has already moved on to Trump's lawsuits and Trump like all of that stuff. He provides he provides enough drama in unto himself. And then there's the other thing is that she's pretty conservative, right? She's not a, I, I'm, I don't want, I, I'm not trying to allege a conspiracy here, but Nikki Haley, Rick Santorum would not have beat Barack Obama in a general election, right? But Nikki Haley would, would beat Joe Biden in a general election and, and do so more easily than Donald Trump. And Haley represents remedy for Republicans in a weird way and not, just disarray. Does this make sense? Yep. Okay. It does. Oh, here we go. Are you ready, comrade? I'm ready. Okay. Do it. Tucker Carlson has touched down in Moscow and apparently already interviewed Vladimir Putin, although he although the, that interview has not aired. 
So the New York Times reporting, Tucker Carlson, the former Fox News host, has interviewed President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia. The Kremlin said on Wednesday, a sign that the Russian leader is seeking to make a direct appeal to American conservatives as U.S. aid to Ukraine hangs in the balance. And I think we should play, let's play some of what Tucker Carlson said. He aired a essentially promotional clip for the interview. Let's play some of that. We ourselves have put in a request for an interview with Zelensky. We hope he accepts. But the interviews he's already done in the United States are not traditional interviews. They are fawning pep sessions specifically designed to amplify Zelensky's demand that the U.S. enter more deeply into a war in Eastern Europe and pay for it. That is not journalism. It is government propaganda, propaganda of the ugliest kind, the kind that kills people. At the same time, our politicians and media outlets have been doing this, promoting a foreign leader like he's a new consumer brand. Not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. They've never heard his voice. That's wrong. All right. So, Chris, he says he's doing here in America. We are not getting this side of the story because no American or Western. They're not even trying. Yeah, they are not trying to get to Putin. They will not interview him. They will not tell his side of the story. They're suppressing. Um, Putin. Yes. And the woke mob. So the Putin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov. This is a. Is quoted in the Times piece. Mr. Peskov addressed that point on Wednesday, saying, quote, Mr. Carlson is not correct, but he couldn't have known that. We receive a lot of requests for interviews with the president. So it's pretty clear that, uh, of course, Putin has gotten many, many interview requests, but he chose the man with whom he wants to sit down for an interview. And that is Putin friendly Tucker Carlson. Now, the the interesting thing here is. And Stephen Hayward pointed this out. He said on Twitter, Tucker Carlson could do himself a world of good by asking Putin one simple question. Will you release Evan Gerskovich and allow him to return to the U.S. with me? Oddly, this could be a moment of restoration for Tucker Carlson, right? If this interview were to come out and he were even reasonably stern, even reasonably, if he could find a Chris Wallesian gear to to challenge Putin in this interview, guess what would happen? Strange new respect, right? SNR, SNR is always available, right? And if he were to ask him, you know, will you let Evan Gerskovich come home with me now? Why do you do this? What about that? Then guess what would happen? All the people, not all the people, but many of the people who have denounced and decried Carlson would say, well, you got to give him credit for that. You got to give him credit for that. What do you think the interview will be like? Well, so Stephen Hayward said Tucker Carlson. Did you read this? Yeah, I just read it. I had a total. It's all right. Yes. I, I do not anticipate that, that he will raise this question. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, as if you're just looking at it out of narrow self-interest, I think Carlson cannot afford to look like a lick spittle for Putin. Right. If if he's a po- if he's a Putin poodle and the. If the question, if, if he treats Putin like he treats Viktor Orban and is like, why are you so masculine and great? And what can we do to help the effeminate American weaklings be more vigorous and breed with desirable Christian women and have more babies? If the, if the questions are toadying, then I think it's not good for Carlson because I don't think there's a big, I, I think the number of pro, of actually pro-Putin potential viewers is relatively low. I think he I think he out of his own self-interest has to be at least fake tough, right? He has to be the kind of fake tough where it seems adversarial and it seems like he is pushing Putin. Whether he and by the way, I wouldn't want to do that with Vladimir Putin because Vladimir Putin kills people all the time. He all the time kills people. And I don't know that I would want to be in a situation where you're going to get probably no answers. And if you ask the right questions, might get yourself or your loved ones killed. So I don't I don't know what he'll do. I don't think he's going to challenge him. I don't think he views his credibility in the same like through a conventional lens. And and I think that he I think he has a completely different view of what he's doing, what his goals are, and that he's there to defy conventional wisdom and say he's like 
I'm the only the one telling we, you the truth. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't anticipate you know that the at old, all. You know the old joke. You know how you deal with your base in politics, and that's true in the media. You treat them like mushrooms, keep them in the dark, and ho- cover them with horse crap. That is what I anticipate. Okay. We'll see. You know who else has an unconventional view of their media role? Kanye West. Kanye West has a decidedly unconventional role. Bill Maher says that he will not air his two-hour Kanye West interview. He calls the rapper a charming anti-Semite. So Bill Maher did an interview on his podcast with Kanye West, as Tucker Carlson once did, and Bill Maher is, is going to eat it. He's not going to air it because he doesn't want to put, because he finds Kanye West to be charming. He says this, the problem, I think, is that he appeals mostly, of course, he's a rock star to young people. They don't know much, and they surely don't know much about the Middle East or Jews. So the combination of Kanye out there, I feel like he was helpful for spreading the fertilizer, and I do mean fertilizer for this idea that Israel and the Jews are the worst people in the world. So what do we say, good for Bill Maher? Well, I found this so interesting because Tucker Carlson, when he had his Fox News show, he sat down with Kanye West and he did the opposite of he this. He edited out. Which is he edited out yeah. the truly crazy anti-Semitic, the over-the-top anti-Semitic the most awful stuff. Parts, yes. And then he aired the subtle yes. anti-Semitic tropes yes. in the show. And he began with an introduction that said, people are going to try to tell you this guy's crazy. Yes. People are going to try to tell you that. that. They're lying to you. Yep. He is the truth teller and never mentioned that he had excised the part where he obviously has some serious mental illness. And and the the Mars willingness to eat an interview that would have been lucrative and gotten him a lot of attention, right? And I'm sure that Bill Maher in the interview, I'm guessing challenged Kanye West in ways that Tucker Carlson or others did not. I'm sure that it was contentious and it might have worked out really well for Bill Maher, but he chose to just eat it, right? He had to like, and and that's the fact. Sometimes you just, you can't take advantage of opportunities because it would be the wrong thing to do. So I, I say good for Bill Maher. Up next. Oh, I love this piece. Uh, very good piece. The great Robert Draper, great writer, writing in New York Times Magazine, how Mark Meadows became the least trusted man in Washington. And we've talked before about the art of the profile piece and how to do it, how hard it is to do them well, and particularly how hard it is to do them well in when you have a unsympathetic subject. And Mark Meadows is, if anything, an unsympathetic subject. And Draper goes through and chronicles how once promising, the once promising career of Mark Meadows was consumed in a just a, a a blizzard, a tsunami of grinding self-interest. And we remember incidents with Mark Meadows where he got caught lying in like almost real time, right? Saying one thing to the press and then saying another and and just just his his overweening ambition and how it consumed him. And Draper manages to do this in a way that is not cruel or seems to be piling on, but it, his tone and his pacing is just really excellent. He here's, he writes, at the same time, this very question possesses a geometric sort of logic that circumscribes the entirety of the Trump era. From the beginning of the 2016 campaign to the present day, a dominant theme has been how, in Trump world, the banal duplicity of a person tends to experience the, the banal duplicity a person tends to experience in a political operation has reached a kind of baroque late stage darwinism even before trump was nominated one of his top aides during his candidacy lamented to me how the campaign infighting had devolved into a real life hunger games by 2019 with senior aides warring over power and proximity to the oval office and multiple former white house staff members having already published score settling books one of them titled Team of Vipers. It had become axiomatic that the surest means of ascent in the Trump White House lay in demonstrating your loyalty to the boss, often demonstrated by someone else's disloyalty, a ritual of backslapping followed by backstabbing. Just as a oh, and at this exercise, no one excelled like Mark Meadows. So just a, it's so well written. It's so well done. It's a great insight. And here, 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 Draper. Chris. 
we got to get to the Taylor Swift section. It's of time. The it's Super Bowl. People people will be listening to this as they prepare for the Super Bowl. And this was in the Blaze Media. Oh, this piece, is a beauty. It's a it's a beauty. Peace. Hat tip to Nate Moore, intre- intrepid surfer of the dank corners of the internet, Nate Moore. The headline is, sure, the left has Taylor Swift, Swift but we have Cat Turd. Okay. Uh, cat I... Turd is the right-wing Twitter gnome de plume of <laughs> some person. Gnome de turd. Yeah. Yes. The left controls all the big messaging outlets known as the mainstream Who's, media. Who wrote this? Who wrote this? We have to give it credit is, where it's due. It is Albion Sadar. Albin Sadar. Okay. Something like um, that. The left controls all the big messaging outlets known as the mainstream media, but the right seems to have a whole army of rabble, rabble rousers behind the scenes in social media. In political days of yore, Nixon in the 1970s, the term silent majority referred to the folks Trope who alert. were a strong, Trope alert. powerful, motivating force in the culture, but did not have a media megaphone. Something very similar is stirring today. Bold, outspoken champions on the right may have been shoved to the sidelines. Think of Tucker Carlson, whose newfound home on X is roaring like a house on fire. But add to their continued influence rising stars like Turning Point USA's Rising Charlie star. Kirk and mainstays like Glenn Beck and Eric Metaxas, both of whom I have worked with previously. And let's just say that America's personal 2024 Super Bowl, this year's presidential election, is far from played out. The what that it were true, you know. This is this is a, this is a beauty, and I I I I think it's worth including because it is the perfect encapsulation of this kind of. And he does a lengthy explanation about. I'm not saying the Super Bowl is rigged, but it's rigged. So this guy's basically saying, I'm not saying that it's rigged, but you know it's rigged. Is essentially what he is claiming, and that it's all it's all set up to punish us, the good people, by the bad people. And let me just say, if you're going to watch the Super Bowl, enjoy it. Make some dip. Will you watch the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. What Do you have any Super Bowl traditions? No. I recommend what my sister dubbed Party on the Rug, but I call Festival of Dips. What, what is that? Festival of Dips. Party on the Rug. Yes, which is if you have kids and they're little, put a blanket out on the floor in front of the TV and make a bunch of finger food, dippy kind of food, and sit on the floor right there. Little kids love it. It feels like a party. It feels it feels neat. And put it down there and have your festival of dips, make a bunch of different kind of finger food and do that. And it's a lot of fun. And the great thing when you have kids, I miss I miss these days when you have kids, if you make it to halftime, it's remarkable, but you don't have to watch the second half of the Super Bowl and it's great. What kind of dip? Well, I think you're going to want to have crudite. Obviously, you're going to want to. I make a Wheeling, West Virginia style Roquefort dressing, which is delicious and wonderful. I think you're going to want a hot dip. Also, is it a spinach artichoke dip? Is it? I want to do a buffalo chicken. A bu- I was just okay. about to say a buffalo chicken dip would That's be very, what I do. a very good, a very good dip in this situation. You throw some hummus out there. Let let your imagination be your guide for the festival of dips. Will, would I recommend also to have some actual chicken wings? I mean, obviously. I eat chicken wings. I don't think a week goes by in any year where I do not eat chicken wings at least once. So, obviously, I'm in a approach. Really? Oh, my. I love chicken wings. In my in my frequency of things eaten, chicken wings are probably second only to steak. Okay. Well, salad. So, it's like, basically, I eat like an animal in a, a zoo. Like, I'm like a bear in a zoo. Throw me a steak and then a bowl of greens, and I'm good. What about Oreos? Oh, this this was good. I I had to include because this this is my fault. But in the same vein of cat turd in the in the cat turd universe, and the the well cultivated victimology of in right media, Mia Cathell writing at townhall.com, America's favorite cookie takes a hard left turn. Takes a hard left turn. What did they do? You wonder. Nothing is immune to woke ideology, not even cookies, period. That's a bold that's a, it's a bold statement out there. 
Oreo's latest partnership signifies a disturbing trend in U.S. corporations advancing the LGBTQ plus agenda as far left ideologues impose it on children through programs like Drag Queen Story Hour and by placing pornographic books in public school libraries. So this is almost like AI. You said to AI, write a piece about Oreo doing a pride, having a, a pride partner for, and you know, it's, it's already late February, Eliana. It'll be pride month before we know it. We'll get to see what Lockheed Martin and Boeing and all, uh, what we'll get to see what the Marine Corps has to say about pride month. It's all, it's all just around the corner. So Oreo doing this is, but pulling up all the classic hits, drag queen story, hour, doing all this stuff. And you can, as you read this, what you, what I think is you're just praying for a Bud Light. You're just looking, you're looking for the Bud Light. Can my article launch the same kind of backlash against Oreo that was launched against Bud Light? And I do find, by the way, a, a, a funny denouement to the Bud Light story that at the end, Donald Trump is like, it's all right. It's over. Drink Bud Light. It's fine. We're good. Anheuser-Busch is a great American company, by which I mean a foreign company. It's fine. Stop yelling at Bud Light. As he was doing a fundraiser with yes, Bud yes. Light lobbyists. Yes, yes, yes. Or yes. Anheuser-Busch Anheuser lobbyists. Lobbyist. Yeah. It's just like, I, you know, have an Oreo. Don't have an Oreo. Watch the Super Bowl. Don't watch the Super Bowl. Life is life is too short. Life is too short. Well, we there were a bunch of stories about the news business. Mm -hmm. And this one I thought was quite interesting. Axios had this piece. News companies reverse course on hard subscriptions, which we saw a huge growth in this subscription trend, of which the dispatch is one, where people buy subscriptions to news sites and they pay $25 a year, $50 a year, whatever, a year. whatever it might be. $100, $100 a year. A year. Dispatch, it's worth um, it. And Axios writes that that is starting to change in some areas. A strategy focused mainly on subscriptions requires upfront spending on premium content. That takes time to pay off and many publishers don't have the cushion for that in the current ad slowdown. They note that Substack, the platform built on the promise of letting creators directly charge their audience, and all of that is su subscription-based, is exper experimenting with a new pilot program that helps creators find advertisers and coordinate ad buys. And they note the Washington Post, which lost 500,000 subscribers since its Trump-era peak, is considering more dynamically priced subscriptions. Uh, time removed its paywall. The Atlantic shifted from a blanket paywall to a more dynamic approach. And while a few major national news outlets like the New York Times have had success scaling their subscriber bases, most other news companies have struggled to sustain momentum following the Trump era subscription boom. And the new publisher of The Washington Post, Will Lewis, told Semaphore, my hunch is that the existing model is creaking. We went from an advertising model to a subscription-based model, and that subscription-based model is now waning, and then we'll enter a more significant period of decline. I believe that the future belongs to whomever can come up with an iTunes for news and the buy-in from, and Apple has tried to do it with Apple News, but it's not quite right. It's not quite there yet because what these outlets, and I think the Atlantic is a great example. It'd be great for the Atlantic if they had a bunch of subscribers. I'm a subscriber to the Atlantic. I'm for it. I mean, I'm not for everything that they've done. Kevin Williamson, ride or die. But I'm, I'm willing to pay for the Atlantic. I'm willing to pay for the Washington Post willing to pay for these places, but... I am not willing to pay for the Washington Post. Are you well, it comes free with your Amazon Prime. You, you know that, right? I had no idea, but yeah, yeah. I'm not even willing to read it for free, barely. It would be really good if these outlets had an easy, one-click, synced thing where it's like, you want this article? It's 99 cents. Click. That, as I have recounted my the nightmare of trying to unsubscribe from the Baltimore Sun and other things... Where it's like, I no, I don't need to pay you $10 a month because I want to read this one article. Finding a way through PayPal, through whatever, that people can click one click and buy one read of one article for a buck is the future. That's that's the future. And I don't know who's going to do it, but that's that's the that's where it's at. 
What about Microsoft's deal with Semaphore to create news stories with aid of AI chatbot? Mm-hmm. The Financial Times reports Microsoft is working with media startup Semaphore to use its artificial intelligence chatbot to help develop news stories, part of a journalistic outreach that comes as the tech giant faces a multi-billion dollar lawsuit from the New York Times. As part of the agreement, Microsoft is paying an undisclosed sum of money to Semaphore to sponsor a breaking news feed called Signals. The companies would not share financial details, but the amount of money is substantial to Semaphore's business, said a person familiar with the matter. Semaphore co-founder Ben Smith emphasized that Signals will be written entirely by journalists, with artificial intelligence providing a research tool to inform posts. I mean, whatever that means. Is it possible that Dave Weigel is actually AI, (laughs) that there's never been a Dave Weigel? I don't know. We're looking into it. More importantly, and quite interestingly, CNN axed its morning show entirely. The much beleaguered, you know, they've tried a million different formulas with this. First, it was Caitlin Collins, Poppy Harlow, and Don Lemon. And then it was Poppy Harlow and Phil Mattingly after Chris Licht departed. But now they are doing away with essentially having a marquee morning show entirely. They're going to have a 5 to 7 a.m. And then a 7 to 10 a.m. They will no longer have a 6 to 9 a.m. morning show. Well, they're going to have TV on. They'll They'll have have TV on, but a 5 to 7 and a 7 to 10. And it won't revolve around these marquee talents. And they're not going to try to win the ratings game in the morning. And this is a sign, I think, that. The new CNN CEO, Mark Thompson, who came from The Times, is turning away from linear television to digital, where he's just not competing on TV. And mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. Well, the, Don, the, the, long, the long tail of Don, Don Lamont, there, there it is. Now, I'm curious what you thought about this piece. New York Magazine, we need a free press, but do we need the free press? which was a lengthy study on Barry Weiss's website. Did you read it? What did you think? I did read it, and I thought it was a good profile. This is by Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine. And the key paragraph and where I disagree with him is he says, the trouble with the free press surfaces when you stop judging it as a corrective to blind spots in the progressive worldview and begin judging it as a worldview in and of itself. While it bills itself merely as a throwback to the abandoned creative objective reporting built on the ideals that were once the bedrock of American journalism, quote unquote, the free press does have a worldview. It reflects the frustrations of college educated moderates disproportionately Jewish in big cities and other enclaves of progressive America. But those frustrations, while often grounded in reality, ignore the vast swaths of reality outside blue America. And I think he's he's right and he's wrong in that. Of course, the free press exists and has succeeded because it's a corrective to the blind spots of the mainstream media. And the same is true of the Washington Free Beacon and the other, you know, right of center news outlets that have had any success. I I think he's but I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, and he, he seems to be objecting to the branding. I'm not. I'm not sure if he would still object were they not branding themselves as as like a down the middle objective news outlet. He So he's objecting to the branding built on the ideals that were once the bedrock of American journalism. OK, that can still be true and you can still be a right of center news outlet. The The truth with an outlet like the Free Press or the Free Beacon is that like we are not... 500 employees. So we have to be more selective in what we cover by definition, because we are tiny little newsrooms Mm -hmm. and as a result are going to fill the blank spaces left by the mainstream media for now. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being an ideological outlet or having an ideological mission. So I think He's right that, like, it, the branding's a little bit misleading. Of course, they're ideological. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And he, I think it's a useful corrective. He writes, to build a worldview entirely in reaction to the excesses of one side is to eventually cooperate with the excesses of the other. The boomer neocons who began with revulsion at campus radicals wound up linking arms with the radical right. 
At some point, Weiss will stop denying that she is engaged in a political project and recognize that she has become a conservative, comma, newly. Um, I don't know what Barry Weiss calls her. I don't know whether she calls herself a conservative or not. She uh, doesn't. But I I guess I, I look at it this way. Chait is, is chafed because he feels like she's not having to take ownership of what's wrong with the right and is focused on attacking the left and that she he's 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 calling as as they would say he's calling her out he took he took to twitter to call her out and i get i get that but i think of the free press as conservative or if not conservative a as anti-liberal and i don't know I don't know. Everybody's just going to do their thing. I like. I think the free press. I I hear from a lot of young people that they really like the free press and that they're really into it. And I think it's influential. And I think it will continue to be important. But it's not a. I I don't know it well enough. I don't think it holds itself out as an all-in-one encompassing news source, right? I don't think that the free press would say definitely not. I don't think the, I I don't know, but I don't think they would say like your one-stop shop for news. I think it's a point of view that they have which is sort of in the Glenn Greenwaldian, there, there's a universe of Matt Taibbi, sort of iconoclastic, we're attacking the liberal establishment. And I think of this very much as part of that. I think that's right. But using real reporting, the the tools of the trade of reporting to do it, which is different from yeah. Most of the rest of right wing media. And I, I think that's very much what the dispatch is trying to do. Right. I think with the dispatch is trying to marshal real reporting. And does is there a point of view at the dispatch? Obviously. But I think an important thing, whether it's the free press, whether it's the dispatch, whether it's your gang at the beacon, the idea that the actual reporting has to be done. It's not sufficient for the American right to have to be like good gag cat turd LOLZ. Right. Writing pieces about Oreo cookies dangers as child groomers is not that that's just being a leech, right? You're just you're living off of the work of other people. Real reporting has to be done. So do it. Oh, this was really good. This was really good. And also from New York Magazine, oddly enough, a a provocative. Oh, and I just used up my free click. See? If you had no, 90, I have it. If you had 99 cents. This is by Rachel Bedard. Please, please. The headline is, the moral panic over Ozempic misses the point. The media has made the drugs about body politics and our obsession with thinness. That's the wrong story. And she writes that in a culture where we so powerfully associate wealth, beauty, and thinness, I wonder if we simply can't envision recategorizing a medicine like Ozempic something rich people want as an intervention for the non-rich. We are comparing Ozempic to the wrong precedents. Fenfen in the 1990s gets mentioned a lot. Macmillan Cotton compares the hype it's received to Botox and Viagra and missing the analogies that would be most helpful. In a hopeful end-of-year story in The New Yorker, Drew Kular compares Ozempic to COVID therapies and the COVID vaccine. Interventions that made an overwhelming, seemingly intractable public health crisis suddenly much less so. The comparison is a useful one because it also points toward how Ozempic's initial access issues do not mean that it cannot ultimately play a powerful role reducing in reducing health disparities. Initial coverage of the COVID vaccine focused a lot on the equity concerns surrounding who would get it first. And yet, because the vaccine was disproportionately beneficial to the populations most vulnerable to serious COVID outcomes, the poor, sick, and elderly were ultimately most helped by it, even if they got it two months later than they should have. I find this I found this piece really interesting. The One of the headlines was basically, uh, what if it's just a good thing, right? What if Ozempic's just a good thing and it doesn't have to be worried over in a moral panic, blah, 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 blah. And I think it's an interesting and provocative point of view, and I'm glad that the piece was written. I think there, so for me, I chose against it, right? I had the opportunity to do Ozempic, and I did not want to do it because I don't want to be on Ozempic forever. And I, I, I want to not have to take drugs. I, want, I didn't want to do that because I'm worried about what happens when you stop taking it and can you ever stop taking it. We don't know enough. I don't know enough about the lasting side effects and all that stuff. But 
given the trade-offs with obesity, right, in a country that really struggles with obesity, you know, maybe maybe these are maybe these are good trade-offs. And I I included this piece and point to this piece because this is good provocative journalism, right? This is like thoughtful, studied, well-researched, makes a provocative case, but isn't provocative just for the sake of being provocative. I found it thought thought-provoking indeed. Chris, that brings us to our obsessions of the week. where we break down the stories we can't get out of our heads. And I wanted to highlight a Wall Street Journal piece from yesterday. We are recording on Thursday, February 8th. So this featured in the journal on Wednesday the 7th. And the headline is, Inside the Hamas Tunnels that Conceal Militant Leaders and Israeli Hostages. And a Wall Street Journal reporter went underground in Khan Yunus in the Gaza Strip with the IDF into these tunnels where some of the hostages were held. And the journal diagrammed the three different levels of these tunnels. And what I thought was so interesting is that the reporter Dove Lieber writes, beneath the rubble of a bombed out residential neighborhood in Khan Yunus lies a sprawling subterranean complex built to shelter senior Hamas leaders and for a time used to hold Israeli hostages grabbed by the militant group, Israeli officers said. An access shaft hidden in an unassuming family home leads to a sophisticated underground warren with several kitchens fitted out with gas stoves and refrigerators, as well as sleeping quarters and bathrooms, one decorated with a mosaic of a tropical beachfront seed. Scene. A metal barred gate blocks the entrance to a chamber converted into a cell. Israeli investigators say forensic evidence, including DNA, indicates that at least 12 people kidnapped by the militants during their October 7th assault on southern Israel were held in the cell or elsewhere in the complex. There are tons of pictures in here, and I thought it was great journalism and fascinating because, of course, it notes that the entrance to this tunnel was in a, quote, unassuming family home. And when we see all of these pictures and outrage over the civilian areas bombed out in Gaza, uh, this really reveals why all of that was, was necessary and how much Hamas has embedded its infrastructure beneath civilian population centers in Gaza. So this was fascinating. It was also just fascinating to see how developed and built out these tunnels are. They they truly live in there. And going deep indeed, right? Like the and so kudos to this reporter for going and doing it and seeing it and bringing back the and it's well written. A worthy obsession. My obsession is less worthy, probably. My here, listen to Carl Rove. I keep hearing that Michelle Obama will be shifted into the no, you're shaking your head. It's not gonna happen. No, no, look, look, she hates politics. Read her autobiography. She didn't want her husband to run for the state Senate. She didn't want him to run for the president. She is not a political animal. And besides, look, Barack Obama was my charge at the White House. I dealt with him for three years. He's a smart guy. He would know that if, if Michelle Obama woke up tomorrow and said, you know what, I've decided after a life of hating politics, I want to be the vice presidential running mate or run for president, people would say, you know what, that's Barack trying to get a third term as president, and they wouldn't go for it. But the starting point is she hates politics. This is a weird obsession of the of a conspiratorial right and it's just lunacy pure lunacy okay pure lunacy says brother rove about the michelle obama replacement i this is my obsession because i have watched on the right wing the idea of the michelle obama ascendancy take root right it has taken a powerful hold on people on the right who believe that the Democrats are luring Republicans into a trap, and then they're going to spring Michelle Obama on Republicans later. Karl Rove makes a, a correct point about Michelle Obama, who has made it very clear that she doesn't like politics, doesn't want to do politics, and that also importantly, do you know the best way to become unpopular? Get into politics and start asking for people to do things. You can go back and look at Hillary Clinton's approval ratings and favorability ratings. You know when they tanked? As soon as she started running for president, right? Because the idea of, do you like this lady? Yeah, she seems okay. Her husband was gross to her. And, you know, I'm for Hillary. That's fine. Okay. 
Hillary Clinton now wants you to vote for her for president. Whoa, I don't know about that. Michelle Obama's favorable ratings and the fact that she is a well-esteemed, well-liked person is predicated on the fact that she's not asking for anything. And I hate to indulge the, the conspiracy theory to this degree, but Brother Rove has, has, has put me there it, that it is worth saying, which is it's not a panacea. We don't know what we don't know what would happen. We don't know how her approval ratings would go. Certainly the part that Rove alludes to, do you think Americans would be cool with Barack Obama trying to sneak back into the White House through his wife? Certainly it hurt Hillary Clinton. The I agree also with Rove that I certainly believe there is a possibility that Biden will not be the the Democratic nominee. I don't know what percentage I would give that both from an actuarial uh, standpoint, but also from the possibility that, yes, at some moment, as Rove said, his wife or someone will say, it's too much, man. Like Biden struggles so, I believe, and Nate, I want you to test my thinking on this. I believe that if Joe Biden were 20, the even to say nothing of 2008 vintage Biden, but even if Biden were as as sharp as he was in 2016 or in 2020, this would be a very different race. And I think that Biden's age and and his obvious struggles in public are a, a huge drag. And I, I I'm certainly open to the possibility that Democrats are going to are going to do something different or that Biden himself will do something different. But it's probably not Michelle Obama. It's probably not Michelle Obama. Chris, yes. that brings us to my favorite time of the week, which is reader mail. And we have a note from Julian Fu over the pond. Across in, the pond? Across the pond in England. Julian writes, hello, I'm wondering, I was wondering if Los Retros had any thoughts about Redbird IMI's attempt to buy the Telegraph and the Spectator with the chair of the spectator having some choice words about the group's frontman, a certain Jeff Zucker. We've seen foreign groups buying up media outlets in America, but as far as I know, none of them are owned by states, unlike Redbird, which is backed by Abu Dhabi. It seems to me like this would pose dire ethical consequences if there are some calls for the UK government to block this effort. Would this be stopped in the US? I don't know. Do you know anything about this? Stay awesome. And I absolutely love the segment where the pets got cooked. We bake great pets. That's that's so, for sure. Can you can you so a more the spectator sophisticated chair, and urban person? Andrew Andrew Neal okay. vowed to quit if absurd Jeff Zucker buyover goes ahead. He said that he would quit if this Abu Dhabi backed in investment group went ahead. And the only thing I would say, I don't know what would happen in the U.S. What what I would say is just that there was recently this outlet grid that was essentially stood up by the UAE here in the U.S. And that, to, from my understanding, these sorts of efforts just have not been successful. I mean, I, I don't think, do we have those kind of media? I, I guess the FTC could come in on an anti, on a... Comp on a competitive argument. But I mean, we have lots of foreign companies that own parts of uh, American media outlet. Shoot the Murdochs. I mean, we have we have lots of we have lots of foreign uh, nationals who own big chunks of American media outlets. I don't know that it would. Yeah. So the UAE helped start. They provided the money for this outlet grid and it just wasn't successful in the marketplace. Yeah. Not because of any law or or anything else intervened. Yeah. Yeah. But we do bake great pets. I'm sorry I don't know more about British law, but we do bake great pets. That is accurate. I'm, I am already, by the way, excited about our 2024 Christmas toy extravaganza. We may have to do a whole special just on the top media recommendations for Christmas for the hot toys of 2024. It is now time, Chris, for your favorite time of the week. That's right. Where oh wait, I don't have a favorite. I know you don't. All right. So you're gonna you can I'm you, off the hook. You can piggyback you can okay, piggyback I'm on my favorite because it's good it's good wow. enough it's good enough for two. Wow, wow, wow. It's a good enough favorite for two. I missed it when it came out, and I'm sorry that I did. The great Caitlin Flanagan 
columnist at The Atlantic, great writer, smart human. There is, they put out at the end, toward the end of last year, a slim, useful compendium of some of her best pieces of late. It's called Unthinking for Yourself. I recommend it. 10 out of 10, recommended highly. She it's, It is a truly a good sampling of her work and arranged around the theme of intellectual independence and understanding to, to live in the world as it is, not as you wish it would be, recommend highly. It's quick and delightful. Chris, that is all the time we have for the news about the news. If you have a story you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. And sign up for our newsletter at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches at Nebulous Media, produced by Colin Chicola. Do it. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. Wretches.